we're talking with one of my favorite guests, one of the great foodies in America, Paula Scheuer. Paula, it's great to have you back. I'm so happy to be back here. I can talk about food anytime with you. <laughs> well, it's, you know, we're a few days away from Rosh Hashanah. So Sunday night, most of the Jews in America are going to be sitting around a Rosh Hashanah table, and there's going to be lots and lots of stuff coming out of the kitchen and on the tables. And I really want to spend some time uh, talking about the, the meaning of food, the stories behind food. And I know you've written many books, and you know we spoke last time when you were here on a lot of the sort of the modern health aspects of, of food. I want to go backwards today. And well, you have to go backwards to cook for your future. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just, you know, the, the recipes that my mother, that we grew up with, and there was those uh, that are so meaningful at the time of Rosh Hashanah. We knew at Rosh Hashanah, we're going to have this, and we're going to have this, and we're going to have that. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm like, um, I'm conflicted. On the one hand, I, I love the old, but when I meet somebody new with some kind of a new recipe, and it's always cool. So we're living in the world of the new. But the old is also amazing. Well, just like at your holiday table, you're going to have young people and older people. The food at the table should reflect the same thing. So what are you going to have at your table, Paula, Sunday night? So I'm a very creative chef, and I'm always creating new recipes. But when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, Thanksgiving, Pesach, it's the same menu every year with a little twist. So it's going to be gefilte fish because I'm Ashkenazi and there has to be homemade gefilte fish. But this year I'm making it in little muffins so that everyone will have like a little kind of gefilte fish muffin and I'll have some salads with that. Uh, just before you go on, because I can imagine our listeners now saying, I want to make those muffins. So we're going to make sure to publish the gefilte fish Muffins, right, Armando? Except for It'll one sure. problem. I'm actually what? inventing the recipe on Sunday, so that could be a little harder. But, you know, if I, I, may tr I can see what I can do for okay, you. Okay, well, why don't you just tell us in, like, under 60 seconds how you think we can make those gefilte uh, fish muffins. Well, I'm going to pilgrimage down to the waterfront in Washington, D.C. Friday morning after I tape a TV show about Rosh Hashanah challah baking on local TV in Washington, and I'm going to buy pike, whitefish, carp, whatever they have, and I'm going to put it in my food processor, and I'm going to mix in some eggs. I'm going to mix in some you know, salt and pepper and some sugar, grind up onion. Haven't decided yet if I'm going to do matzo meal. I may just keep it gluten-free. I have some gluten-free guests coming, and I'm going to bake it in the oven and see what happens. Oh, man. You have to get back to me right after the chagim. Yeah, because usually I make pictures. the loaves, you know, yeah. like a long loaf and slice it. Right. But I thought this would be easier to serve. We're 27 people Sunday night, and I wow. have to make it easy. And then I have a new matzo ball recipe with a whole bunch of chopped herbs, like a ton of them into the matzo balls. So I'm going to make those. That's on the menu. And the soup's already in the freezer. I and hope you don't have those little yellow things, those crackers. I can't stand those. I have. I don't they think I've the, ever bought those. Yeah. People me love those, but why? If the soup is good and the matzo balls are good? I have never been to an Ashkenazi home where they don't serve soup. There's an obsession with soup. We love was. soup. Yeah. We love soup. And I make soup, you know, 52 weeks a year. It could be 100 degrees outside in yeah, D.C. So you're, I'm making soup. You're definitely fall oh, right into absolutely. that. It, the only problem is when there's a slurper at the table. How do you 
you know, what you know do you what? Do the table tends to get a bit loud. We have a lot of people. It gets so you loud. Have, you don't hear the slurping. You got to drown the slurper. You drown it out. There's always some old uncle or anything. He doesn't really know he's slurping. It's a I problem. Know, but sadly, we don't have that old generation at our table anymore because oh. they're all gone. And okay, so, so we it's going to be a slurp-free Rosh Hashanah so. table. Uh, my mother makes the squash pumpkin soup. It's in the JewishJournal.com. Highly recommended. It. it goes back in the Suiza lineage for centuries. Squash pumpkin soup, Rosh Hashanah, for all you Ashkenazim out there who love soup. We so, love soup. Yeah, and let's keep going. So, okay, and then I have a new brisket recipe, spinach pesto brisket. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to have turkey because I have to feed a lot of people. And I also made my mother's recipe for sweet and sour meatballs, which is literally Heinz chili sauce and grape jam in equal parts. And kind of okay. real retro, like 1970s kind of recipe. But my grandmother made it, my mother made it, and I decided it had to be at our table this year. You know, I had a <clears throat> just, I don't know, a light bulb this year. I used to never like talking about food at the table. Right, just because I don't know, just uh, you know, figured try to elevate the conversation and do Dvartoras and philosophy, whatever. Certainly not Trump and politics, but I realized, you know, at a recent meal with the family, we started talking about the food, and there was the stories about the food, and there was this recipe, and I really enjoyed it, Paula. You know, and I just think whoever the listeners out there, I might write a column on this. It's really a potentially great idea. Well, that's why you have to choose a menu that tells the story of your family and your background and your experiences. Could be your travels, could be any part of your life, but the food tells a story. And so if you're going to serve these dishes that you remember from different times in your life, different experience, different people who shared those recipes with you, then you're elevating the food and you can also you know, explain to a new generation, you know, why it's so important to have traditional food at the table. You know, I ran into a friend the other day when I was signing books at a local kosher store in Maryland, and he was planning this totally trendy, creative Asian meal for Sunday night. And when I asked him why that, when I asked him, why isn't he having any traditional recipes, any food at his table? His son's only two, but one day his son will be older and he should see the kind of food that he grew up with and his wife grew up with. And he said it never crossed his mind. And I feel like if you don't have those recipes for these holidays, then your kids and your grandchildren, they won't remember them. They'll be lost. There was a moment uh, last year when one of my good friends, who's a Muslim professor at UCLA, Omar Boum, and he's from Morocco. And he's a like world expert on the Jews of Morocco. We just love each other. And he, whenever my mother's in town from Montreal, she cooks Friday night, and we invite them. And they love each other. And they end up talking about the food and the similarities between my mother's cooking and his mother's cooking, even though you know he was living in a Muslim village in Morocco. So there are these moments that the discussion of food comes out easier. But... I'm curious whether you're going to do some of that Sunday night at your table. Well, I think I will because I I just gave a talk about this subject at AJU, and it's really on my mind. And Tell I us real- about the talk. So this morning I spoke at American Jewish University here in Los Angeles, and the, top, the, the title of the talk was really interesting. It was called Creating Jewish Food Memories by Cooking for Our Future, and it's all about the importance of of preserving traditional recipes, whether you're Ashkenazi or Sephardi, and including those at your table so that every year for certain holidays, people will remember 
those recipes and have them be part of their identification with those holidays. And I talked about the history of Jewish cookbooks, how, you know, in the 1800s and in the early 20th century, people who were writing books were trying to take old world recipes, adapt them for like new Americans and help American Jews who are really new Americans keep some of the old recipes, but help them feel American at the same time Mm -hmm. by incorporating kind of trends in food, into their t- into their meals. Well, you know, we, we often talk about what do we give to the new generation, right? Uh, we talk about Jewish identity, and we live in a time where we've been so hugged and accepted that we end up assimilating in the American secular culture. I mean, that has been discussed, you know, to no end. Uh, but then when you really look at food, and it's really something concrete, so we talk about, you know, giving over Jewish values, for example. Jewish values are wonderful, but they're abstract. So I'm a good person, and I care, and I have compassion, and I care for the, for the stranger. Those are wonderful values, but they're abstract. There's something about food that's really concrete. But you can combine the two. So let's say, let's talk about the Jewish value of gratitude, right? So we will talk about gratitude to God for our food, but also to the people who prepare the food. And think about the gratitude of those you cook for who are in need of comfort, whether it's Shiva or there's somebody in the family is sick. It's like we use food to kind of help people in a way. So we're sharing that Jewish value forward. We're using food to... To show chesed, to show kindness to others. This is a fascinating subject. When we talk about the importance of um, community, right? Mm-hmm. That's another important Jewish value. So when you look around at who's at your table, like you're creating your own kind of micro-community. The big joke at my house is that every Pesach or Rosh Hashanah, I won't invite that many people initially. I'll leave space at the table because I'll always find out about someone who doesn't have parents around or the parents are gone or their kids now are, I'm an empty nester, their kids are away, and they don't have any place to celebrate the holiday. So I always make sure I have room at my table so that everybody who wants to be part of a holiday celebration will have a place to go. You know, I hope there are rabbis listening to this who are thinking, because I can see how it would be really worthwhile to weave in food in the sermons, weave in food when we speak about values. It's so easy to do. You know, I was saying Kaddish for my mother several years ago, and I went to an Orthodox shul in my community called Ohev Shalom, and the rabbi— Wait a minute. Uh, Hertzfeld? You know Shemuel Hertzfeld. He's my buddy. He's my buddy, yeah. too. Every single time that I showed up for Minyan in the morning, he would weave food into a Dvar Torah, no matter what the Parsha was, the Dafyomi, whatever Why? it was. Oh, because, because of I was you. The, because oh, wow. I was there. And then at the end, when I was saying kind of the last Kaddish, I think it was on my mother's yurt site, my father was with me. I went to a different shul where the rabbi didn't even, he knows me, but he didn't recognize me because I wasn't dressed up. I was in jeans in the back of the women's section on a, on a Monday night. And he happened to weave food into his Dvar Torah. So I went up to him afterwards, and he said, oh, Paul, it's you. I didn't see you back there. And I said, I can't believe you just did that because for, you know, 11 months off and on, Rabbi Hersfeld did the same thing, and he was so excited that he did it by accident. And then I told Rabbi Hersfeld that Rabbi Antine had also done it. So it was kind of funny how I inspire food-related Dvar Torahs wherever I go. Do you, re- do you have any recollection at all of how Hersfeld, uh it was a couple of food. years ago, but, oh, okay. but in, in so many, every possible way you could. Right. No, I think it's, uh, th- there's a lot to be said for that because we're always kind of searching and grappling for something real and authentic that we can hold on to. 
Right. Yeah. And it can't just be about kashrut. Like that's just Correct. there's because that also gets political and very complicated in our community. Different co- people follow different hexures and certifications. And it's just it get that can get really bogged down. If you look at food and kosher food, people say, oh, it's so hard to get kosher certification. And then this one is fighting with that one. I want to put that aside because I really feel like today there's almost like a renaissance in kosher food in America, whether it's more Asian ingredients have hechshers or there's more interesting kosher restaurants all around the country and food trucks. So I feel like it's all it's like the way you talk about kind of elevating the conversation about food. It's kind of all around us outside of our homes as well. Well, so it may be time to bring food into the spiritual uh, conversation in a uh, in a much bigger way. What else did you speak about this morning? So one of the things I talked about was, um, well, I can give you two things. One is I always like to add a little Torah when I, when I give my talks. And I talked about something that I've, I've said on a couple of different occasions. Basically, when like Moshe went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, when he came down and saw that the Israelites were worshiping the golden calf, he destroyed the, the tablets. And he went up and got new tablets, but he... The new tablets were actually carried around in the temporary ark when the Israelites were mm-hmm. wandering around the desert. But the broken tablets were in there as well. And I talked about the I always say that like the tab the broken tablets, the shards remind me of babka crumbs because my mother used to like <laughs> collect the crumbs from the chocolate babka and eat the crumbs all the time. Um, but I feel like what I said this morning was that your food memories are your own little bag of crumbs. Like it's the pieces of your past mm-hmm. manifested through food. The memories of eating with your grandparents, your friends, your colleagues, your community, food you brought to people to comfort them. Those are your little crumbs that you carry with them. But the other thing I talked about was I told everyone I was going to give them a recipe. And they were looking at me like, she's not set up to do a demo. And I talked about homemade challah. Now, homemade challah, right? There's nothing better than homemade challah. And I'm told you that L.A. My has... Your my mother's Well, yeah. my challahs. Okay, okay is, good. <laughs> I'll bring you some next time. And I was told by the audience this morning that there's some really good challah to be purchased in Los Angeles. Kola well, kavo to all of those, but it's still not homemade challah. It's the, you know, pretzel challah has been... Yes, I know all about the, the, yeah, the, the pretzel challah, but that's a couple years already. Right. So what I talked about was that the recipe for challah, all the elements that are in challah, actually... It's like a recipe for life. So I talked about how each of the ingredients has its own spirituality. So, for example, flour represents like our physical life, which obviously is important, as important as spiritual lives. And we have to make traditional recipes like I do healthier to nourish our bodies. Yeast reflects our desire to rise to challenges in our lives. So you should challenge yourself with new recipes, but also take the old family ones and give them a reboot and bring them back into your table. And sugar represents sweetness and chesed. And you should think about, you know, when you're making challah and when you're cooking, is there someone in your community that needs a cake or a challah dropped off or an invitation to a meal? And then oil, you know, oil doesn't mix with water. It reminds you, talks about things being separate or together. So it should remind us not to lose our Jewish identity. And I talked about that we shouldn't lose our Jewish food identity as well. And then, obviously, eggs represent the cycle of life, and we celebrate all of our life cycle events with food. I love that. We always do. Um, But you can also think about, like, traditional recipes that you can make for somebody. Like, if somebody loses a family member and that person used to bake something, Mm. you could ask them, like, okay, you're sitting shiva, you're in your 30 days. What do you miss that your mother or grandmother made for Mm. you that I can now take that recipe and prepare for you? Mm. And then salt represents rebuke and, and discipline. Shouldn't be too much or too little. 
but I think it means more like balance in our lives and at our tables, have old elements and new elements. And then water represents the soul. And to nourish, nourish our souls, we have to talk about gratitude, like I mentioned before, gratitude at our tables, gratitude beyond, and gratitude to the people who cook the meals. I once heard a rabbi speak about um, the, the making of bread as the ultimate embodiment of the partnership between us and God. <laughs> so, you know, God provides the, the, the earth, the rain, the seeds, and the wind to bring the water over to nourish it. And then we do the rest. We do the, the planting and the harvesting and, and the baking. It's like a perfect there's, partnership. There's something so basic about baking bread, though, that feeling of the dough in your hands. It's just simple elements that are so elevated. I make sourdough recipes as well. I made focaccia the other day. Homemade bread, to me, is something very special. Well, it's got the aroma, too. I, I was raised on it from Morocco to Montreal. To oh, the breads in Morocco were great. They have so many different kinds of bread there. That's something I'm going to master next. I had some Sunday night at the wedding in Montreal because my, uh, my nephew married a girl from Casablanca, and they brought a, I think, I don't know, a chef or something from Casablanca, and had Arab bread Friday night at the Shabbat meal. Well, was it the spongy one or the flatter one? Flatter. Oh, the flat one flatter. that has, like, parsley and onions in it? No, it? no parsley and onion. It was just and a And I couldn't bread. explain why it was fantastic. <laughs> Apparently, it was really simple with uh, some salad quid. But you're right that there's so many angles to food. Uh, and there's some really emotional ones. Like one of the emotional memories that I have about food is that my mother would eat last. When we grew up, we were like, you know, struggling immigrants, you know, with five kids. And she made a meal every night. And I don't know if we all knew it at the time, but it's certainly part of our memories is that she would eat last if there was any left. And even that is so emotional, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I have so many memories of going. And my mother was a simple cook. You know, she had about 12 recipes that she repeated over and over. But because of that, they're so imprinted on me. Oh, they really are. She had this chicken and potato dish. And I don't know how she made those potatoes taste so good. I think we found that it was saffron was her secret thing, ingredient. And it was kind of a delicious yellowish sauce with the with the chicken and <laughs> potatoes. We grew up with that stuff. When I get together with my siblings, we, we often talk about it. Yeah, no, I definitely have a couple of the recipes. I also made for, for lunch on Rosh Hashanah, my, our family dairy kugel. And I'm not a kugel person. I'm more, you know, I'm more about healthy food, but I make an exception for this one kugel. And this is so Ashkenazi. It's cottage cheese, sour cream, cream cheese, and butter, and sugar mixed with noodles and baked oh, with yeah. eggs. It is, <laughs> yeah. you can't eat a lot of it, but it is so great. And at one bite, and I'm just transported back to my mother's and my grandmother's kitchens. It was if just, you're going to cheat, you might as well cheat for something really you know, nostalgic. Oh, I'm and never going to cheat on fast food. It's always going to be right. something homemade that's just a little heavier than I normally like to that eat. That comes with a story. That comes with a story, you know. And it's my mother would serve this dairy kugel on Shavuot and to break the fast. So I always have it after Yom Kippur as well. But I started serving in a Rosh Hashanah lunch so that because we have dairy lunches on Monday and Tuesday, and so that I could have it more often. You know, the the best food writers are the ones who kind of tell stories. I guess my listeners could figure out by now I'm a food junkie. Uh, I love all stories about food. And our food writer, uh, Yamit, has been telling, like, food. the reason we love her so much, she can't just give over a recipe. 
there's always a story that's connected to her aunt in Israel, connected to a grandmother. And it's always, there's always this human connection. Has a book been written in that genre? A lot of people talk about, you know, in their head notes to their recipes, kind of where the stories come from. I certainly do that as well. But I also feel like like today you have an opportunity Okay, so we're taking all those recipes from the past, but I'm a, I'm a cookbook author, right? So I'm always creating new recipes. But now that I have a whole new group of recipes that my children and all our family and friends have kind of lived off of from the last 30 years or so of mine that are becoming kind of their kind of contemporary food memories. So mm-hmm. there's the old... Or you're creating new ones. Right, I'm creating wow. new recipes. So I have a, a Moroccan spiced short rib in my new Passover menu cookbook. Everywhere I travel around the country, people say, we love that recipe. It's so simple. It's like a dry rub on the meat, seared on the grill, and then baked in the oven with barbecue sauce. And for my kids, that's what they want when they come home. That's what they want before they'll go away to Israel or Do on a trip. Do they know it's Moroccan? Yeah, yeah. Okay. They know the spices. We took cooking classes in Morocco this past year, so they, they know all about Moroccan cooking now. Which, by the way, is a whole other level of spiritual connection with food, which is the fact that it brings different people together, right? Right. Like in my neighborhood, most of my Ashkenazi friends now are cooking uh, Sephardic cuisine. Right. But once again, the danger is that whatever they had growing up, if that doesn't have a place at the table, then their kids are going to say, oh, we grew up with really great Sephardi food, which is great, except that that's not their culture. Yeah, nothing what, wrong with that, but I'm just right. saying that you have to you have to include both. That you have oh, they to, do, they do. You but, have to be deliberate about when you yeah. plan your meals, be like mix and match different things. Because I do that too. Yeah. I love to cook food. I love, I'm a French chef, I, French trained chef. I love to make French food. I like South American food. We love Peruvian food. So we're always mixing it up. Well, they draw red lines. Like, you know, the gefilte fish is a major red line, yeah. uh, which, by the way, one of my favorite dishes is the Sephardic version of gefilte fish. Those fish balls oh, my yeah. mother makes, they're beyond amazing. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about with the tomato sauce and the spices and the, yeah. Have you made it? I have, a, I, instead of making the balls, I do the same sauce, like the Moroccan fish sauce, but with like fillets of fish. Uh-huh. Okay. And my problem is I can't eat really spicy food, so I have to rely on my husband to tell me if there's enough spice in them. So I now when I write recipes that have, you know, red chili flakes or red chili powder, I always give a range for everybody so you can make it as spicy as you want because some people can't eat the spice, but they want the flavor. So I try to give people a range so they can have it the way they like it. Uh, and what else are you going to cook? Like, you know, when we get into the Chagim, right, I, I wrote a column once saying we have like 28 Thanksgivings in, in a month the month of Tishrei, from the oh. very beginning to Simcha Torah, there's literally... I always say Jewish people are making Thanksgiving dinner every Friday night of the year. So, like, we're always... And the doing... Orthodox is two Thanksgivings, because you have the lunch, too, right? Right. I do, light, I do lighter lunches on the Chagim, but I'm also serving the side dishes I'm serving at on Sunday night. I'm doing Kashavanishkas and Simis. You know, my brand new... What's Simis? What is Simis? Yeah, I hear that. Um, you know what the word simis means? It means like a fuss, you know, yeah. to make it simis out of something. But it's sweet potatoes, carrots, prunes, apricots, kind of cooked up in a little bit of broth, so it's a stew. I have chunky version in one book and a puree, like a French puree in another book. Is that the second night of Rosh Hashanah? No, I'll or- make that while well, I'm hosting the first night, so I'm going to make it the first night. Got it, got it. But then there's so many meals throughout the whole month. So you got four meals at Rosh Hashanah and you get eight meals at Sukkot and... 
This like you add it up. It's Sukkot, more than I always meals. say you have to keep Sukkot simple. Like Rosh Hashanah, I'm making so many different dishes. I got vegetarians, gluten free. I've got quinoa and I've got potatoes and I've got this and I've got that. But Sukkot, you're carrying the food outside. It should be a main course and some kind of a grainy side dish and a vegetable. And that is it. Sukkot is not the holiday when you should bring 20 plates outside. Tell me about that, because is there a spiritual reason for that, besides the logistical reason? Just logistical for me. So I, I always see. think about Sukkot is like about stews, like a Moroccan beef tagine would be like a great thing to make for mm-hmm. Sukkot, mm-hmm. because it's like a meal in a bowl. Right. And growing up, did you grow up with Sukkot, and did you, did yes. you have special... Yeah. Um, the first Sukkot we had growing up, this is really funny, and my brothers will remember this as well. So I grew up in Long Beach, Long Island. It's the South Shore. It's a beach town. About My house was about two blocks from the beach, and we had a garden next door to the house. And I don't remember where the fort came from, but somebody had gifted us like a play fort for little kids to play in. So it was literally like four walls, but it looked like a fort like from the Wild West. And Oh, my, if it was like six feet by four, I mean, it was small. And we used that as the sukkah for a couple of years. And we would get this chach on top, and my mother would put a table inside, and we would all, five of us would squish into this little play fort was our sukkah until my parents moved it to the porch. And then they built a bigger sukkah, which was easier for us to bring the food out. But I always remember being in that little space and being squished together. Oh, that's part of the, <laughs> the tradition. <laughs> the frail hut yep. that reminds us. Um, so there's another subject that also fascinates me is why is it that, uh, the breaking of the fast after Yom Kippur, is that a thing, right? Uh, I've been to many of them and usually there's a kind of a sameness to it. It's like, uh, you know, bagels and stuff like that. I guess, you know, we, I was hosting breakfast in my shul for a couple of years. And then when I was pregnant with the twins, I think I might've already been on bed rest around Yom Kippur, so my neighbor Trudy took over making breakfast. It has now morphed into something like 80 people show it's up It's becoming at our a big deal it's across a, the so we're communities. 80 people, but everybody brings food. I bring, oh, the dairy, I, I bring the dairy noodle kugel, but Trudy makes amazing things. She makes a salad niçoise with grilled tuna, and it's like in a vat. It's like a bathtub of salad niçoise to feed these 80 people, and it's so fresh and delicious. She makes a pasta and pesto with avocado. Like So we have some traditional stuff. Somebody always makes the blintz souffle, which is like... An Ashkenazi thing where you take like frozen blintzes and you pour more stuff on top and you bake it in the oven. That's a breaking the fast That's thing? That's a break the fast. I didn't grow up with blint souffle, but for other people, it's a what very else? big what deal. What else are um, classic staples? Then we'll always have the bagels in the lock. Right. But she'll also have like grilled salmon and just like right. nicer food. And people bring lentil salads and other salads. I'll, I'm sure I'll bring some kind of dessert to her as well. So we have this kind of really eclectic combination of food, of dairy food, but it's a fabulous breakfast. Well, I, I, I was raised with only one food item to break the fast. The charita, exactly. How do you know? Because <laughs> I know because I that. have a charira <laughs> recipe in my next book. And I know that um, that Muslims eat charira after Ramadan. So it's like yeah. this classic breaking of a fast dish because it has everything in it that you need well, to get energy back. I am going to plug my mother's charita recipe was in Joe Nathan's latest book, I think the Jerusalem cookbook. Oh, they, this and, King Solomon one, that one? Yeah, exactly. And apparently it was one of her favorite I will check it out. Harira, if people out there who Mimis don't know what harira, harira soup is, it's a soup that has meat and chickpeas and 
lentils and rice, like everything in one bowl with this velvety tomato and spicy velvety background. A little it's lemon. A, it's a real, and lemon yeah. at the end. It's a yeah. very special soup. The first time I had it, I couldn't believe I had lived my whole life without eating the soup. I was kind of angry at my Moroccan friends that they had never made it for me. Okay, so Harira, H-A-R-I-R-A, we're going to publish it in the Jewish Journal. Armando, please remind me. So for all you listeners out there looking for something interesting to uh, break the fast, besides coffee, which is my yeah, addiction. Yeah, but it's, it's a hard sell for the bagels and lox crowd. Like People really just want bagels and lox and egg salad and like the yeah, most you know, traditional Yeah, what I find about Kharida, it's a good first thing to break the fast because the body's kind of hasn't had anything for you know, 26 I'm one, hours. I think, you know, I've got some Kharida in the freezer. I'm thinking about taking it out to eat before the fast. What do you think of that? Uh-huh, well. Because it'll fill you up, right, and give you energy. Yeah, what do you eat before the fast? Simple, what? simple food. I mm-hmm. always make enough chicken soup in August for Rosh Hashanah and always have a separate container for Yom Kippur. So I'll have matzo ball soup and I'll have a simple roasted chicken. I've done lentils and rice, mujadara, and like a roasted carrots. I stay away from gassy vegetables. I stay away from anything too, too heavy. And I do lentils and brown rice and I keep it a very simple meal. You know, and since we're on the subject of food, there's also the whole world of tea, which is a whole other world altogether, which my, my grandfather... Uh, was a tea merchant in Casablanca, and they would come from all over the country, and it was a real, real ceremony because they oh. would try out different teas. And the pouring of the tea in Morocco for anyone who has not yet been there is something to behold. They pour the the tea from about three feet above the glass, and you don't. I wouldn't sit too closely to the cup. My my kids got splashed a few times. Well, that's because the they made it for the tourists. By the less, yeah, it got higher and higher. The more oh, they wanted yes. to impress but the, the tourists. the tea is so great. I have a great memory. We were hiking in the Atlas Mountains, and our that's guide, where I spent my summers. And our guide took us to his home in this teeny tiny village, and we walked up and up and up, and we sat on his roof, and he served us tea with like white capped mountains all around us, and it was so beautiful. He brought out dried fruit and nuts, and he served us tea, and it was something very special. Yeah, my. my my mother was raised on it. She would just see her father just pour different types of teas. And they would, from all over the country, they would come and they would buy in wholesale quantities. But tea in places like Morocco is not meant to be you drinking it while you're on your laptop working. It's meant to be right. people sitting as a group around a table, like a low table, together yeah. having conversation. It's not just, you know, a grab-and-go kind of thing like we all do today. But there's, there's some, like, real pungent, strong ones, like Shiba. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that rings a bell. Like, I, I was raised on that too, and it's really, really strong. Look, when I'm in Montreal, I have tea with my mother all day long. I so agree with you on that. It's uh, so food, generally speaking, is something that needs to sort of rise into the Jewish conversation. This is what I'm getting from our conversations, Paula. Yeah, and I think the question to ask around your table is, what are your food memories? Mm-hmm. Because when I was, this morning, when I was at AJU and I asked people, does anybody out there still make blintzes from scratch, chopped liver, knishes from scratch, I didn't get over five hands up for a single thing I mentioned. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Yeah. Could be your next yeah. article for the Jewish Journal. Yeah, it's like people are just not, they think it's just too old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. And I submit, I'm like, okay, well, take what's old-fashioned and make it a little bit healthier. Right, because there's been a, a sort of a functional evolution towards food and when it was so obsessed with health and so forth that food has taken on a kind of utilitarian 
uh, condition, which is, you know, it's, it's healthy and it's about being vegan and it's about not eating meat and it's about environmentally conscious and so forth. And the, the, the emotionalism and the nostalgia and the spirituality of it has sort of been... And the, the other thing that's going to, is like a, a modern challenge, and I mean modern as in the last two, three years, Israeli food has become so very popular. Well, apparently one of them was like the top chef in the country in New York or something. I heard some Israeli chef in New York. Well, right. Michael Salamanov and Enad Edmoni right. and, and Alon Shire, they're all like top right. chefs. That forget about Jewish, Jewish anything. We're talking best chefs in the country right now. Exactly. So Where Israeli does that come food. from? How did, why did that happen? Besides I think people that, were ready for things that are a little bit healthier, and they mm-hmm. realized that Israeli food kind of answered all, like solved everyone's problems. Like, okay, there's all this plant-based food. So, like, if you're eating a plant-based diet, you already have all, tons of recipes, all the cooked salads and all of that. And people were getting a little bit healthier. It's so great for PR for Israel that people, the conversation is in the food world, period, everywhere, is all about Israeli Seriously? food. Seriously? Yeah, it and really is. It's exploded. Give me examples of uh, food items from Israel that are classically Israel that you particularly I like love. playing around with different flavors of tahina. Mm-hmm. So I have like a yellow beet tahina in my next book and a red beet tahina. I like playing around with hummus, um, different versions of Israeli salads, people using like pomegranate syrup and date syrup in different recipes. Mm-hmm. I love Michael Solomonov has all these wonderful rice recipes in his book. So Israeli food is really cool now. So everybody has co- started with the Otolenghi books, but now right. even more so. And I think that's a great trend because it's good for Israel and the food is just so delicious. And is, is it the marriage of the tradition and the new that you were referring to earlier? It's really more Israeli. I see. Right? So like, okay, so you're going to have like... Maybe there'll be a chow and a chamim or something like a, you know, like a stew. There'll be some traditionally things in it, but the food is really more our world food. And so interesting, too, because, you know, you got a hundred different nationalities in, is, in Israel. You know, you got for centuries and centuries, there were Jews all over the world sort of waiting to come, you know, for Israel to be born, I guess. And then you have a hundred nationalities. So I guess it's taken on its its own flavors. Right. right, it's so great. Like, Georgian food is very popular in Israel as well. Mm-hmm. And most people are like, what do you mean, food from the country of Georgia? What are you talking about? But the food is delicious. And despite these hundred nationalities, there are still foods that are percolated up to the surface and are Israeli. You, you, they're not Russian or Ethiopian or... Right, but today in America, Moroccan. hummus is hummus, hummus is everywhere, right? Correct. Hummus is everywhere. So it's like the bagel now. Hummus became the bagel, right? So if you right. ask people where bagels came from, they're not going to say Jewish anything. They're just going to be like, I don't know, they're American. Right. You see Hummus, the movie? It's really... Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah. Hysterical. (laughs) I did hear about that. Right. So it's great. I mean, I love that about our culture that it's kind of pervading, you know, the world. It's not just in our... We're not just enjoying it ourselves. We're sharing those great recipes. I wonder what they eat when uh, when the Israelis and the Palestinians meet, if they eat together... I wonder what the. I think they all just it? say, "Well, this was from <laughs> this comes came really came right, from us. Arguing. And this, this came no, from no, no. us, right, or this right, came right, from right. <laughs> They'll argue over anything. I was at a restaurant in D.C. the other day, a Middle Eastern restaurant that had something called Beirut hummus. I was uh-huh. like, "All right, I have to try it." Now it was just hummus that had a bunch of like green pepper and some different spices on top. It wasn't as good as other hummus that I've had, but I was like, "Oh, let me try something else," because people will say hummus is from Lebanon or from Syria or you know, right, other right. parts of the Arab world. Exactly. But like Ownership. it's then, you know, it it seems amazing to me that everybody's fighting when everyone really is eating the same food. They're all eating pita. They're only hummus and fool and they're eating a lot of the same food. Uh, the best what, hummus I had was in a refugee camp in Ramallah. <laughs> Oh, man, he made it right in front, scratch. 
just yeah, hummus is one of those things that is kind of very basic until you've had like fresh, warm hummus. It's exactly what in it the was. Old city, Paula. And you're like, it's a whole different it was, experience. It was fresh and warm. It's exactly what it was, and they just add these little parsley at the end. Mm-hmm. I like to put on a little sumac and za'atar. Yeah, you know the other thing, Paula, is there's so much news today about like eating disorders and so forth and uh and everything we've been talking about today is really kind of a healthy approach to food right like you you're eating with other people and you're uh it's sort of it's just really a healthy relationship with food is it not well the idea is that like some of the old fashioned recipes may be a little on the heavier side, but I always try to lighten them up, but keep them true to their kind of integrity of what they are. Make mm-hmm. sure the recipe still remind you of your ancestors' food, but give them a healthier spin. But I feel like it's about balance. You know, it's not about all or nothing. It's not about never eating certain kinds of heavy Jewish food and only eating the modern healthier food. I think that there's a place for both at your table and in your life. And I think psychologically, if you're nourishing yourself with nostalgia, with stories of your connection with your ancestors, that's kind of a healthy psychological nourishment as opposed to using food as a, as a substitute to kind of use as, as medication to medicate your depression or so forth. You know, this, this almost gives you a, a healthy storytelling behind food. I mean, I, I'm no expert, and I'm not pretending that uh, this is going to solve all problems, but there's something really well, pe- healthy. Well, people talk about that you shouldn't be eating your feelings, but I feel like mm. if you your feelings are something positive, then you're kind of eating your feelings in a good way. Oh, that's interesting, because this idea of incorporating the stories of food and the great memories of food, you're saying that sort of ignites positive feelings. Absolutely. Yeah. and. Most of the time, you know, you're, you have family members who ate a certain way. Like my grandmother lived to the age 98 on like a diet of sponge cake and Sanka. <laughs> you know, she wasn't eating healthy food, but she was always uh, active around the kitchen cooking all the time. So, you know, I'm not saying, oh, we should all eat the way she ate. I'm just saying that there's a place for balance in our well, lives. Well, you know, I was very close with a friend who passed away a few years ago. He wrote a book on microbiotics, Mayor Abisera. And I had so many meals with him. And he ate so little, Paula. He just ate slowly. It didn't matter what he ate. And I think that's also part of the holiness of food is just eating in light quantities. He would always tell me, uh, you should always leave a table a little bit hungry. You know, yeah. I guess I look it's at it doing different. <laughs> and, you know, I feel like as, you know, in... In the, according to Jewish law, you're supposed to say a prayer before you eat your food, right? So right. you're actually stopping before you stuff food in your mouth, and you're thinking, okay, was this grown in the ground? Was this grown on a tree? And you have to consider that to figure out which prayer you're going to say before you eat the food. So as Jews, we already approach food and elevate it a certain way. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's just we eat a little of this and eat a little. We want to enjoy it and really savor it. Savor it. And knowing and more honor it. At, right, exactly. And knowing more about it and where it came from and the stories behind it helps you do that better. And you know what? I think we should bring that up too. My family, I'll bring that up Sunday night at the, uh, at the Rosh Hashanah table. I'm going to plan a whole curriculum. There we go. So we'll share that. <laughs> this has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm uh, very interested and eager to see where this can go and if there's a a book that can be written that sort of connects uh, food with all these great things we're talking about. Uh, Why don't you take that on as a challenge? What do you think? 
I could probably do that. You know, I've, I've spent most of my career creating recipes that all come from a story. You know, all my recipes come from someplace. And this, uh, this idea of a question, you know, uh, what are your food memories? What is your food story mm-hmm. that you want to tell? Right. So when you're at the table this holiday and over the, this next month of holidays, ask your guests what they remember. What are the foods that they miss and wish they still had a chance to eat? What are the foods that are what they make all the time today so that their children will remember? And what are the forgotten ones? I want to save the ones that are not being made. I love that. So here's a call out to all the listeners. Please, uh, if you can remember, to ask that question on Sunday night and Monday night at any meals over the next month. Uh, what are your favorite food stories and what are your favorite food memories? Because that's what, at the end of the day, it's memories that have lasted for centuries and we're continuing them on. And if you have any really interesting answers, just send them along to David S. at JewishJournal.com and they may end up in your next Jewish Journal. Yeah, and you can find me on Facebook as The Kosher Baker. I also have a Facebook group called Kosher Baker where other people share their baked goods and their stories about their desserts that they're serving at their table. I started that about a year ago, and that's been such a fun What's it called again? Kosher Baker. Kosher Baker, that's a Facebook page? Yeah, it's a Facebook group. You just have to go on and ask to join, and then you join, and you get to learn from other bakers. I love that. Different tips. Has anyone ever brought in uh, the, the galettes, the Moroccan galettes? Tell me what's it, like. Are you talking the fr- like the French tarts, the open face French galettes? No, or you're no, talking they're about... really thin, and they have anisette mm-hmm. on it. And we actually filmed it. I'll send it to you. We filmed the recipe of my mother making it. Oh, that I would like to make. I would definitely yeah. make that. I keep just talking about my mother. I might as well just do a podcast about my mother. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. You should have her Paula. on the podcast to talk about her recipes. I would, lo- I would love to interview her because <laughs> I love well, learning new <laughs> techniques and new ideas from everyone, you know, who, people who really love food. My Ashkenazi friends are, adore those galettes. They're, they're very simple. They're humble. But they sneak Not everything up on you. has to be complicated. I know right. I'm sitting here in a city with really creative restaurants that are, you know, tend towards complicated and fussy on the plate. I, I feel like a lot of the old world recipes, if you're using good ingredients, good combinations, it's it's just good. Well, yeah, because that's the thing with compl- creativity. It could end up replacing these great nostalgic kind of foods of our past. But you're not going to let that happen. No, because there's a place at our table for both. Wonderful. Paula, it's so great to have you back. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I really hope our listeners take advantage of all these great thoughts that you've had for the coming high holidays. Well, wishing everyone a very sweet new year. Amen. And I hope to see you back next time you're in L.A. Absolutely. Thank Thank you, you, David. Shana Tova.